Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Daily Horror Habit is finally back. A week off in the woods left me scrambling as soon as I returned, and between guesting on two other podcasts, I admittedly stretched myself a little thin. But hey, here I am, and I couldn't be more excited to kick off a new series review of a beloved horror classic, that being Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Over the next several weeks, my guests and I will be exploring Psycho sequels and the 1998 Gus Van Zandt remake. And as usual, I'm only familiar with the original film, so I can't wait to explore these uncharted waters, which I have on pretty good authority, are better than their reputation at the time of release might have led you to believe. But enough housekeeping as this week we begin, where else than with Alfred Hitchcock's seminal 1960 psychological horror film Psycho. Written by Joseph Stefano and adapted into the 1959 novel of the same name by Robert Block, Psycho follows Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, who's on the lam after stealing 40 grand from her employer with the hopes of starting a new life with her boyfriend. But an ill-fated night at the ramshackle Bates Motel throws her plans out the window upon meeting the polite but eccentric hotel keeper Norman Bates, who's played by Anthony Perkins a man preoccupied with little else than taxidermy in his tumultuous relationship with his mother. And joining me to discuss Hitchcock's unique approach to horror, Psycho's legacy, and unpacking that death scene is returning friend of the show and Cultured Vultures film editor, Natasha Alva. Natasha, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back. <laughs> Usually you and I chat about recently released films, but this time we're chatting about a classic um, that I'm really happy to dive into today with you. And it's one that I haven't seen nearly as often as I probably should have. You know, I think that Psycho is one of those films that has solidified itself in, you know, the horror genre and certainly a standout of Hitchcock's uh, career. And yet it's a film I think I've only seen two or three times, but on every time I revisit it, it kind of reminds me like, oh yeah, this is very clearly from the start, uh, a very special film, I think. And a standout in more ways than one from his filmography, this being his you know, I would say his first most overt horror film, right? Even though Psycho itself, the way it's constructed and shot and everything, definitely speaks to his sort of stylistic uh, tendencies from the first half of his career. Yeah. Um, I would say that I think I prefer Vertigo, but I think, yeah, Psycho's really up there <laughs> as one of the great oh, works. Sure. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, with a film like Psycho that is so well known that, you know, because of its sort of uh, legacy, if you will, and its popularity and being the standout film. I find sometimes when I go to watch classics for the first time that it's difficult to go in without some sort of understanding of what to expect, right? I think that for somebody like myself that grew up watching a lot of the, you know, 100 scariest moments specials on TV or top 10 scariest uh, slashers or psychological horror film specials that they would run on like AMC or Bravo, these sort of like cable specials that would come on around uh, Halloween, which I've chatted a lot about on the podcast. So when it came to Psycho, it was the type of thing where I had already seen that scene, right? The shower scene, which it's so well known for. But then, and actually sitting down to watch the film for the first time, 
there was a great deal of it that I hadn't had spoiled for me, which was really, really rare, I think, just because I feel like when you're so inundated with horror media, it's hard to go in blind necessarily on things. Uh, so I'm curious for you, like, what was your first time sitting down to watch Psycho like? Uh, I think... Okay, so I think it kind of... I mean, it was spoiled for me. I, I don't think I was watching, like, the list that you were watching, like, the top 100 <laughs> psychologically. <laughs> <laughs> like, any of those lists, I think... Um, I don't think we had them you know, on our channels, you know? I mean, back in our day, right? I mean, we didn't have streaming or, you know, YouTube. Right. <laughs> so, it was just cable. Um, But I think... I think I'm... I The first time I saw it was in film... uh In a film class... Um, and it wasn't like the entire film. It was like just like segments of the film because I think uh, the film prof wanted to showcase, uh, I think, you know, basically how you build tension, I think, uh, in a film. Um, you know, and of course you can't, I think, do a film, intro to film thing without talking about Hitchcock in some capacity. So, um, yeah, so... um, Yeah, so I guess like... Uh, <laughs> that moments like also the key moments I guess was spoiled for me so I had seen um you know like the shower scene right um that last moment where he smiles creepily you know so all those moments like you know um and then I I cannot remember when I watched it fully through I think it might have been after like I my interest was peaked after that film class and I was like okay I'm gonna go and watch it um but I think I also watched uh that remake as well, the one with Vince Vaughn. Yeah. So I think I watched mm-hmm. like both uh around the same time. I can't remember when, but uh yeah, so it's probably when I was in university for at the time. Yeah, so I was about ten years ago, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I'd seen the special when I was a kid that showed the shower scene and was just like, Oh man, this is so violent and scary and whatnot and all these things and intense. And then I didn't see the movie probably until I was graduating high school when I came across it probably and watched it for the first time. And it was the type of thing that even though I'd had that one moment spoiled for me, um, when I actually sat down and watched the film, I was so taken by the format and the structure of Psycho, which is what still stands out every time I revisit the film, um, because it really lacks a traditional structure, I think, of what people have a tendency to think of when it comes to horror, right? Especially the fact that the film spends an hour with the character that we believe to be the protagonist, but then ends up being, you know, the first victim of the film, that being Janet Lee's character of Marion Crane, right? And that sort of structure, I think, is very unconventional for what, again, most people tend to think about with horror films, right? Within the first, I don't know, 15 minutes, there should be a kill or something along those lines, or have a character come in, you don't put a lot of faith in, you know, their ability to survive because they're the first one introduced. And then, you know, you go on and move on to the rest of the cast that, you know, one by one will be picked off throughout the course of the film. But with Psycho, I think that it's interesting to see how Hitchcock structures it, not entirely unlike a lot of his thrillers, right? It's that he does a very good job of sort of introducing these characters that are sort of, um, I suppose, playing with morality uh, of some sort, right? This idea of these two people that kind of want to run away with one another. And the plan is, is that Marion is going to steal this money from her boss. So then she can run away with her boyfriend and start this new life. And it, it really does feel like this co- sort of traditional Hitchcockian buildup, 
that doesn't feel overtly horror until that one moment. Um, and I think for me, you know, the breakdown of this film is what allows it to really never sort of hit any, I don't know, like genre, traditional genre strides, if you will, of a horror film. Yeah, I think what makes it so remarkable is that we've both been spoiled in some capacity, right? So we know like the pivotal moments and the iconic moments, and yet is it's so rewatchable, you know? And, um, I think when I was watching it, what struck me is that I realized that Barbarian uses like the same structure, right? Uh, I was just like, oh man, it's like exactly the same in the first act, you know? It's like, um, uh, yeah, except that, you know... Um, twist she's alive right <laughs> but you know it's not the same in cycle <laughs> so i was like wow right? sure. it's exactly the same um yeah so i think i think uh i think that's like very powerful the fact that um you know you can watch you can watch something kind of already knowing how things end and yet still feel so captivated and it's largely due to the structure and how he structured it yeah, I love that, you know, again, taking it back to this idea that the first half of the movie feels very Hitchcockian and sort of the uh, staples of his filmmaking, right? I mean, just the year previously he did North by Northwest, and then the year before that it was Vertigo. And with Psycho, I love that he plays with sort of the tools that he has established himself, his career with, right? And I think that he does a good job, again, of playing to his strengths, but then in the back half of the film, you see a little bit more perhaps experimentation with the horror aspect of it. Um, so like the beginning of the film, you have sort of picturing of a new life, stealing the money. You have this very sort of tense moment where she's trying to flee and she's caught at an intersection. She sees her boss and her boss does a double take. And so all of a sudden there's sort of this tension of like, oh, is he recognizing her? Does he recognize her? Is he going to confront her? But he doesn't in the moment. And then it kind of adds this tension that's slowly building of like, okay, somebody knows that she is doing something perhaps she shouldn't be doing. And then she has that interaction with the highway patrol cop. And then she's haggling with the mechanic. And Hitchcock is very good, I think, of taking characters and giving them big stakes, but then showing us these little interactions that don't necessarily have the same stakes, but it just is further building that tension and more so and more so and more so. Um, and I just, I love that. And the pacing of that for that first hour um, is really masterful because even though you don't have, like I said, the sort of more overt horror moments um, that I think most, some people perhaps might assume that Psycho is filled with more than it actually is. Um, I think that that buildup of tension really doesn't allow the audience to ever really relax, despite the fact that, you know, there isn't a killing on screen for the first, you know, 55 minutes of the film or something along those lines. Yeah, I think what I really enjoyed is how she imagines the conversations um, that goes on with all these people that she meets, you know. So when she sees her boss, she's like thinking, oh my God, he's going to go back to the office and have this entire protracted conversation about, you know, how she stole the money. And, um, you know, after she leaves the car dealership, she's thinking about how the policeman is probably like, interrogating the man and you know um, figuring out that she's up to something and like I don't know like even in the midst of her just driving the car right like you kind of feel you know because of the way um she's having she's imagining all these moments like you still feel that she's being pursued even though like no one's <laughs> pursuing her you know um mm. so you feel um you know and I think Bernard Herman's score is just <laughs> masterful like you know the, 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 the. 
Uh, well, yeah. 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 Even its use in the uh, the title screen, yeah. right? I think that just from the jump, you have that sort of the crisscrossing with, of uh, the graphics, which I think is you know, rivaling something along the lines of what Hitchcock typically does with his films, where he has a lot of these sort of, uh, you know, crossing paths between characters or these twists and turns and whatnot, and then having that score play over it immediately before you even know what the movie's about. Uh, it just, it builds this sense of anticipation for something that is going to be very hectic or at least very strenuous for uh, the protagonists and whatnot. And yeah, you know, that moment where Marion Crane's driving the car and she's having these conversations play in her mind, I think that that's another great example of why, and I was really surprised on this rewatch, just how briskly paced this feels for a two-hour movie. It really doesn't feel like there's any slowdown. And, you know, the comparison to Barbarian, I think, is a good one because it shows that, you know, with the beginning of Psycho, the first hour, it's just all about Marion and her arc and whatnot. And then when it transitions over to, to Lila, it's the type of thing where it doesn't have the same stutter stop that I think some films do that have attempted to do this because you've had so many moments of background on what's probably been happening while Marion has been on the run and, you know, she's having those conversations, but it's still her having this forward progression through the story. It's not a cutaway then to interaction with her boss and then to Lila and then to Sam and then back to Marion. It just, it keeps with that character in the moment and lets their story play out before picking up the pieces of the other characters. And I feel that Marion's segment does enough to inform us about those other characters and where their headspace is at, what they've been doing, that it really doesn't feel like there's a great deal of like, okay, now let's settle back in and we'll pick up with these characters and we'll let this build up that same sense of steam. Um, just because again, like the film really just has the sort of all gas, no brakes approach to the pacing that I'm a really big fan of. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think when I watched it the first time, I think I didn't notice that, um, like how he began the film with, um, Marion and Sam in a motel room themselves. Right. Um, you know, having a frisky afternoon, I guess, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and I guess the idea of, um, you know, the motif of, um, motels right they kind of go through the the film you know um yeah and i i mean it really made you think of um you know these spaces and how people just drift through them uh and yeah i don't know it just set the the tone and the mood for everything that is to come i could relate to these characters because i think you know um I think someone talks about it, I think Norman later on in the film and he talks about this idea of like private traps, right? And we are all like in our own little private traps. And you and it and you know it's a it's a motif that carries on. Um, you know, and I think we can see the traps that, you know, both Marion and Sam are in, right? For Sam is his previous marriage, right, that's holding him back and you know, he can't commit to her in the way that he might want to because of, you know, his father's debts, you know, his um, yeah, his marriage and the alimony that he's to pay, right? And, you know, for her, um, she wants to be with him, but she's not a rich woman, right? You know, she can't help him in any capacity, right? And it sets, you know, the, I guess, the stakes and it helps us understand why her character would do what she does um, later on. I don't know, it's just... um. Even like little moments where she's just packing her bag, there's just so much like characterization and it, he makes it so interesting and I just feel so invested. Like I think 
I, th- I sometimes I I lament that I think modern films don't do this as well. You know, I mean, we have all this like special effects, you know, uh, happening, and you know, like all this um. I guess ways to I think entertain or draw people in, right? You know, we have we have that at our disposal, right? But I, I was thinking that you know when I was watching Psycho, um, you know, for the pod, and I was just thinking about how I was just watching Cocaine Bear like a few days ago, and you know, <laughs> what a contrast. <laughs> and but I thought that you know I was so bored like watching Cocaine Bear, and it's a movie about a bear that does cocaine, right? I'm supposed to mm-hmm. like be entertained, and you know, has this bear goes on this killing spree or whatnot, but like the way the film is structured, and you know, the way uh it kind of follows the characters is just not in the way it's just not tight in the way that um Hitchcock does it like I don't know I mean it's a weird comparison but I just feel that you know nowadays I think um people don't really pay attention to that anymore like the way the film and the narrative is structured and how to build around that structure and to direct you know in that way yeah I mean I you know technically I guess you should be bored or whatever but I'm I'll never bored and I've watched it like dozens of times right so I think there's like really like yeah I mean he's a master for a reason I guess yeah Uh, yeah I think it's a combination of both Hitchcock's um, you know him applying this sort of microscopic uh, detail to every scene that plays out right but I think also part of it is uh, John L. Russell, the cinematographer for Psycho, uh, the fact that this film was shot in black and white and that was like a deliberate choice. Um, I think part of that does a lot to capture the mood of this film. And, you know, frankly, the black and white is gorgeous in this. Yes. It, it gives the world so much detail um, at a time when, um, I don't know, a lot of films, it seemed, were moving away from black and white. They wanted to be more colorful, get with the times and whatnot. But what they got with the sort of visual fidelity of playing around with colors and lighting in a new way, I think something like Psycho proves that like black and white was still very viable for extracting as much detail out of an environment or a setting. And you can elicit a mood right from the start um, when you, you know, are fortunate enough to have that. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, with Hitchcock, sort of what I mentioned earlier, in each of Marion Crane's sort of encounters, something is learned from each of those. They're not sort of just these moments where something happens per se, but it's more so like you get an example of her ability to be cunning, to be crafting, to be quick-witted and these different things. And it really does strengthen her character, I think, in a way that is not – I think it helps in terms of keeping the plot moving because, you know, in that interaction with the cop, right away she proves like she's not scared of authority and at the same time she knows her rights. She's like, oh, well, I haven't done anything wrong so I can leave, right? Right which shows that like she's a very confident person. Um, and I find that throughout those interactions, especially like from the cop to then the car mechanic, at the same time, like she shows, oh, she can haggle with this person that's like, oh, I'm going to keep throwing these little roadblocks per se of like, oh, you should do this or that. And she's like, no, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. And it just sets her up to be somebody that the viewer views as being this very strong protagonist that you can't possibly think is going to die at any point because of just how much time we're spending with her, how much she's solidifying herself as the strong central figure. Um, And it is a great sort of uh, subversion, I think, of what you would expect from a typical horror protagonist or whoever the first character that's introduced that you might think is the protagonist, I should say. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um I think uh, I mean what I also found quite compelling I think is um we are, I I'm just kind of wondering like you know the intention behind all these men I guess who are deterring her. You know like the policeman he's wearing these shades and you can't see his eyes. You know, and you so you don't know like why exactly he's asking her all these questions. Does he have like a suspicion? Is he trying to flirt with her? Like, what's up? You know, like, uh, yeah. And I think with the salesman as well, right? You know, like the moment she comes in, he's like, "Oh, you're gonna be trouble," you know, because the first customer of the day <laughs> is always trouble. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I I found that like um like and like that moment where um. The three of them kind of stand at uh the car dealership and they just kind of look at her as she drives away. I don't know. Like it mm. always makes you feel like as she's driving and she's going, she's being watched, she's being pursued. Yeah. So I guess the staging of it um helps in that sense. Yeah, you know, I think that it's the type of thing that again kind of allows the tension to build and build and build without going along these conventional horror sort of uh, tropes or principles or structure, right? The fact that Hitchcock is able to smartly sort of introduce us to this world in a way that feels familiar to his craft and whatnot. But then in the second half of the film, after he has that shock, he's able to then take the film and move it in a direction that feels stylistically in line, but at the same time more extreme, right? Which I think is really cool to see at the towards the end of a filmmaker's career where it's like, okay, I'm doing what I've been known for. I'm doing it exceptionally well as always, but then he's able to really, you know, crank the volume up to 11, if you will, in terms of like how extreme Psycho gets. It's sort of the drop of a hat, right? I think that he does such a great job of establishing these characters. And then of course, you know, you have the interaction with Norman Bates at the motel and these things. And the tension is just building and building and building. And I think when you've been watching a filmmaker's work for a certain period of time, or if you're just from super familiar and a fan of their work, you kind of try to begin to piece together where something might go. And then Psycho really does just throw that shower sequence at you in a way that is so unexpected and so shocking that even if you've seen it on the Bravo best of a hundred scariest moments like <laughs> I did, when you actually watch the movie, it almost feels shocking every time it happens because of how suddenly it's introduced and how casually that graphic violence is introduced. Um, and I think that in terms of this film and like Hitchcock's filmography, that's the aspect that I am always taken with. The fact that, again, if anybody that had ever seen one of his films previously had been watching this, they'd be like, okay, I'm sort of getting a sense of where this is going, where this is building. And then the second half just takes that and runs in probably the complete opposite direction of what most people would be uh, assuming. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, have you ever been to like a CD motel? Like, have you seen your fair share? Of... <laughs> I've been to a, a few, a few in my day. Uh, you know, traveling uh, across country to visit family and stuff. You know, you have one of those ill-fated nights where it's like there's a rainstorm or an ice storm or something, and you have to pull over, yeah. and you just needed shelter. So you stop at the first place you find, and just immediately upon checking in, you're like, maybe this was not great. Maybe this was a mistake. <laughs> Uh, granted, none of them had had a taxidermy room <laughs> quite like the Bates Motel, which uh, <laughs> I think I would have just slept in my car at that point. Did you check the room for peepholes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just start taking down all the uh, picture frames. I mean, I don't know. It just felt um, <laughs> very relatable. I think 
there was one time where um me and my friends I think because um we were traveling uh and we were in Italy, and um the tour guide was telling us you know be careful right because I think we were staying at like a three star hotel, but um a three star hotel in Italy is not exactly top notch kind of hotel. And so when we arrived at the place that like someone had drawn like some like a penis, like a really big penis outside. <laughs> and I was just like, oh wow, this is scary. <laughs> so um yeah, I the fact that, you know, um when she when she arrives, he tells her like there's no one there, you know, they're so like far from everyone else, right? Because you know, the the old highway is no longer there. It it just feels so isolated and so scary like i i think if i were i'll just keep driving <laughs> like i wouldn't stay yeah. there <laughs> at, at the same time to build off of what you said earlier when you think about the sort of interactions that she's had with men up until that point yeah. they've mostly been these very intense situations with people that you know there's the authority figure there's the one person that's behaving in a manner like he might turn her into the authorities or whatnot and these men that have been throwing these those short-lived but still roadblocks in her way of, you know, getting to her goal. By the time she meets Norman, he almost seems like the most normal of the three so far. He's just kind of like, yeah, as a guy that takes care of his mother, he's very sort of eccentric and quirky and whatnot. But, you know, and this is from a male perspective, I would think that he is like the less uh, intimidating of the other men that she's interacted with so far. You know, even if you take it all the way back to that sort of like Southern businessman that comes into her office that's like very flirtatious and pretty gross yeah. and, uh, you know, <laughs> laments of, or complains about the fact that he has to, his daughter's getting married away from him, which is like a very weird phrase for a father to use. But it kind of just further shows that her relationship with men up until this point has been either contentious or it's been something that she's been worried about. And while Norman is certainly not the most normal guy out there, <laughs> in comparison, I would think to like the others that she's been encountering, he seems like the one where she can kind of like almost talk her way out of anything he says, which I think makes her kind of feel a little more empowered in the interactions with him compared to, you know, the others that she'd been uh, interacting with. Yeah, I think, oh my God, I don't know. Anthony Perkins is so, so good. <laughs> and I think... I don't know when the first time I watched this film, it never struck me like how good looking all of these people are. Like they are just like gorgeous. Like I think when I was watching this again, I was like, oh my God. Like, you know, these people are just like Hollywood stars, right? Um and I think uh yeah, I think I I mean that's why the barbarian thing really struck me because I think it was the same kind of vibe that Bill Sarsgaard was going for, you know, like cute but a little bit weird you know but um nothing you know like some stuff he's doing or saying is weird but you know nothing too like off the cuff right and I felt that um Anthony Perkins played it exactly the same right um until the moment that it shifts until she talks about his mom and then it becomes like oh <laughs> like some, there's something <laughs> wrong with this dude you know um when he says I think we're all a little mad sometimes you all go a little mad sometimes yeah so it's just a regular conversation I don't know there was like <laughs> uh yeah I mean if you just took out that scene right you isolated it it could even be like the start of some rom-com <laughs> you know <Yeah>. like yeah <laughs> I mean, right. like obviously he was attracted to her 
like he communicated that quite clearly um she was just i don't know i think she felt sorry for him um you know because of how he's being treated by his mom i think he's polite respectful seemed to be very courteous and you know um very uh host like i guess you know going out of his way to like you know be very hospitable yeah so um it was a, I don't know, I uh, it was a very like nice conversation until it it wasn't, <laughs> and then I was <laughs> <Right>. like, oh. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that conversation concludes. You start to see, you know, a little bit behind the curtain of him, right, where he kind of becomes very standoffish at a certain point when she's talking about, you know, should uh, he put his mother into like a home or an asylum, and you know that you know shows that oh no, you know while he might be this person she views as being this pushover. There is an edge to him if you say certain things that can trigger him, which I think is a good balance between somebody that is overly polite and awkward, but at the same time, you know, there's a little bit more there to them that they're not revealing or that they, for the most part, are able to contain, but are not always able to, which shows, you know, the the uh, the capacity for something more than what they let on. Um, but I love that whole interaction with between uh, Marion Crane and him and that back in that taxidermy room, which, again, the way that this film is lit and shot is fantastic because it makes you feel like a mouse when they're introducing that room and they're showing these massive animals on the walls, whether it's the birds or like a fox or something like that. You almost feel like prey uh, that's kind of like cowering down looking at them. But more importantly, I think that that scene, again, does a great job of just building up and ratcheting up intensity with just dialogue, right? I think that you have this room that's like very strange. You have this guy that is like equally strange, but very polite. But then you have Janet Lee, who's able to, you know, play with wit a lot in dialogue, which I love, you know, like uh, Norman says, oh, you eat like a bird. And she says, well, you'd know, wouldn't you? Uh, and like little moments like that, I think do a great job of just showing that she's able to hold her own in this world that, you know, is dominated by men. And at the same time, um, she's not going to be perhaps a traditional sort of pushover, if you will, of, you know, what a typical portrayal of uh, a, a female character in the 60s who's like running away and breaking the law on these things who might sort of uh, succumb to those pressures of people that are trying to either get information out of her or, you know, put up those roadblocks to stop her from her goal. Um, and she's just able to, you know, handle herself in a way that I think really dominates those scenes where it's just her and, you know, having this captivating dialogue. Um, I also do like that Norman himself, you know, as great as Perkins' performances, there's also the fact that even if he is this sort of like pushover, he's very polite, he's very strange, you still see his intelligence. And you see that like when their conversation wraps up, the fact that, you know, he keeps trying to pull information out of her, but she's very reluctant or she's very vague. And then you notice that he notices that the name that she gives him is different than the one that she wrote down, which, again, I think that builds in a nice way off of the fact that, you know, he has that edge to him that he reveals for a moment. But then also the fact that he's not asking these questions because he is kind of like making casual conversation. There's something more behind those questions, um, which I think does a really good job, again, of not having some type of overt conflict appear between the two of them in that moment. But you see that like his gears are working in a way that initially you wouldn't think somebody like him maybe would be either capable of or have some other type of uh, motivation or goal in mind for that conversation. Yeah. I think 
I mean, what I also liked is that, you know, she wasn't like judgmental, I guess. I mean, when she found out that he likes taxidermy and he stuffed all these birds in the room, like she doesn't look that she's judging him or that she's like, you gross kind of thing, right? She's just like, oh, okay, that's a interesting hobby, you know? Um, Yeah, and then, I mean, they, they talk about, you know, hobbies and how, uh, and he's like, oh, you know, hobbies are... Uh, you know, it's more than a hobby, right? Because hobbies are there to pass the time and, you know, not fill it, right? So, uh, yeah, and I just, I don't know, I just really enjoyed their conversation and um, and I, I, felt, I found it very interesting that she kind of let her guard down because she had her guard, like, up consistently on the way there, you know? But I think um, because I think he's the first person that she's encountered who showed her some kindness, you know, so to her, it's basically like he stood up to his mother, like he came to like give her some food. He, uh, you know, conversed with her, right? Um, so I think that's when, you know, the name slip kind of happened that she let her guard down. Um, and I guess, I mean... Yeah, I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, I mean, he was always going to do what he was going to do, right? But, um, yeah, so it's kind of sad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I think also it shows maybe uh, she's kind of like been worn down by all these men asking her all these questions all day long that when she finally does think that this is somebody that she, whether, you know, uh, whether she realizes or not, is letting her guard down to them. It's kind of like, oh, okay, well, why would you assume that about, you can't assume this person's going to be this mass killer, but at the same time, she's been answering the same questions all day from these people. And she, as soon as she finds a situation where she can let her guard down, the worst possible, <laughs> the worst possible outcome uh, happens for her, unfortunately. But we should get into that scene that I mentioned early on, which was that shower scene. Uh, and that, again, was a scene that I had seen years, almost probably a decade before I actually saw the full film and seeing how that scene is placed in the film. Again, we talked a lot about how this movie's broken up the first part. And then you have the second part that picks up with Lila Crane and Sam Loomis. And of course the private investigator Arbogast, which is probably one of the wildest names of any movie character uh, out there. I just love that name. That's so out there. But um, in terms of that scene, I always assumed that the movie opened that way. And that would be that this woman shows up at a hotel, she has this interaction, and then she's murdered. But the fact that that scene is almost an hour into the film, and you've had all this buildup and all this investment into this character and their journey and their plight, it makes that scene play out so much better. And if anything, you know, it shows in horror films why it's so important to really give a person to the body that is being, you know, uh, hacked to pieces and whatnot by the killer. And the way that that scene is composed, the suddenness with which it plays out is always the quality of it that I think probably stands out the most for me in that it's so sudden, you don't see it coming, and it's just as effective, you know, on uh, dozens of rewatches later, like you said. Yeah. Did you think Did you think that the mother was a separate person, like when you first watched it? So I thought, so that was an element that I had ruined for me, but... On a rewatch, subsequent rewatches, I was really surprised by how well Hitchcock sells it, right? I think he does a great job of portraying Norman as being an accomplice rather than the killer themselves. Um, I thought that they did a good enough job of creating 
the mother figure, and especially like with the mother, uh, you know, you have her shouting and these things and whatnot, and you have people reacting. It does a great job, I think, of setting Norman up as like the fall guy for somebody else's actions. Um, and at least on a rewatch, I didn't necessarily see a moment where I was like, oh, it's clear that he's the one that is doing these things. Yeah. What did you think? I Yeah, so that's why I lament, right? I lament that, you know, it's like it was spoiled for us, right? Because you didn't get to like, um, I don't know now if I've ever, I would have known or not. Because now that I, I'm watching it and I know, I just see like Norman. Like I don't see like, you know, that's the mother. So, um, but I mean, you're right. I think Hitchcock does a great job of masking it, I think. Um, <laughs> though, though the, I think there was a part where I think when Norman's carrying the mother and then you see the legs flapping, <laughs> you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like um something's not right <laughs> but i think i was shocked that um it was her corpse like, i think i thought it was a dummy or something like that like some mannequin um yeah so the fact that it was her corpse is um yeah but it sets it up really well right because he's he's into taxidermy so i think like um they kind of provide that rationale right of how he's able to do the things that he does so i think i like it when film doesn't um, you know, just kind of expect you, you know, th- these people just become experts and you're like, oh, how do they, are they able to do that? But I think the film does a great job of like laying all this brickwork. So, you know, we get a sense of Norman, what he's capable of, right? And then, you know, at the end, when we find out everything, it just all comes together and just makes sense. Um, Yeah, but I don't know, the shower scene is frightening because I think, I don't know, the shower is a place where you're just the most vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. You're just like naked and like showering. And and I, I just feel for her so much because she was enjoying that shower. You know, it's like her, <laughs> her brief moment of respite, right? Like, you know, after like a yeah. long day of just being like flustered, you know, and worried and being like pursued. She's just like, oh, finally, you know, I can just like, yeah, just, just take a shower. And, <laughs> and then that happens. Um, it's actually one of my fears. Um, oh, I, I think you and me and an entire generation of people, right? But I think it's because I stay like, um, I have like a landlord. So I in like the house that I stay in, right? Um, it's like a two unit kind of thing. So there's like a main door. And so my door is here, right? So sometimes I always think about the fact like, you know, that someone could come in and then just come <laughs> into my door mm. <laughs> yeah because there are a few times i've been in the toilet and then my husband comes back home but i i didn't hear him you know and then i come out of the toilet and i hear like someone in the house and i'm like that happened to me the other day <laughs> one of my roommates came back i was on the porch and i turned around and they're just standing there and i was just like oh would have been great text me or give me give me a knock or on the window or something <laughs> not just stand there like a weirdo <laughs> but i think you're right you know the fact that he's able to take what is the most mundane part probably of most people's day or just a normal part of most people's day and make that moment of vulnerability and you know relaxation especially (laughs) at the end of a hard day even if uh you know we can't relate to being on the lamb and whatnot you know after a long day what do you want more than just like a hot shower to be left alone with your thoughts and the fact that he's able to weaponize that moment that's supposed to be a reprieve from, you know, your worries, things that are stressing you out and whatnot, and weaponize that into this, you know, kill box, essentially. 
Um, and just also the way that he's able, that they're able to frame that scene, right? You have the constant uh, POV from her of looking up at the shower head and then the water, you know, is cascading around the camera and whatnot. Does a really good job to make the viewer feel sort of uh, claustrophobic or isolated, as isolated as somebody would be in the shower themselves. It isn't this sort of far out shot, a fly on the wall where it's like, yeah, this is a bathroom and somebody's showering. It's more intimate, um, which I think is what makes that so disturbing. And the fact that it only then cuts away to show her from a fly on the wall perspective is when, you know, Norman is about to strike, which there is a quality to Norman's kills in this movie, and they're very few. It's only two. Uh, and that's something that I always forget. I think um, I have a tendency, the way that some people have a tendency to misremember the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being far bloodier and violent than it actually is. I always think of Psycho having more kills or being more violent than it is. And really, it's two moments of violence that are done exceptionally well. But I think that's why sometimes people when they talk about that movie, they have a tendency to be like, well, it's a little more violent than that, but it really isn't. It's just the quality of the violence, I think, is so well executed on, so well orchestrated. Um, but in terms of like Norman, he has a speed or a quickness that is really disturbing to me, and I don't know why. Uh, it's also in the Arbogast kill, when Arbogast is you know investigating the house, you see Norman's sort of uh, ruse falls apart of like, oh, this is, you know, I, I've never seen this person. Oh, wait, no, I have seen that person. They stayed in this room. Oh, no, wait, I made them dinner or this and that. And Arbogast investigates the mother's house. And the quickness with which Norman storms out of the bedroom to stab him, it's so shocking because, again, it is this almost unconventional uh, sort of portrayal of a, a killer, I guess. The classic portrayal of a killer, I always think about being slow and methodical and the fact that Norman kind of just like bolts around a corner or sneaks up very quickly on uh, Marion when she's in the shower, that always catches me off guard. And I don't know what that says about me or why that's uh, upsetting, but the quickness with which you realize a character's fate before the character themselves do uh, is something that has always been very disturbing. Mm, I think it goes back to what you, you, you mentioned earlier, right? Like I think in the parlor or something that he's... Um, basically, you know, filled the room with all these animals, all these predators, right? He moves like a predator, you know, with that kind of speed. Um, I also think because the space is isolated and the fact that he knows that there's nobody there, I don't know, that allows him to move in the way that he does. Because I think usually if you're slow and methodical, it's because like you are like maybe there's other people around, you need to be kind of like... Um, a bit more sleuthy, you know, so that you don't get um discovered. But the fact that you know it's his house, his property, uh, no one else is there, so isolated, he can you know move in that way, you know, um, and without because he doesn't, he's not scared of being discovered, you know, no one's there to kind of witness him do these things. Um, I think Hitchcock also plays with, I mean, height, right? Obviously, um, both both kills are shot in such a way that, you know, um, Norman is in a position of height. Uh, and even when, you know, he's conversing with Marion as well, he's also like sitting on this higher chair. He's like, um, or I don't know if it's a higher chair or, you know, if Hitchcock just um, put the camera that way, but he looks, you know, um, she looks consistently in a in um yeah in a shorter position you know so she's at the yeah so um i think it helps 
give him that sense of dominance, that sense of power, um, you know, and I guess the quickness adds to all that as well. The dominance of men too is recurring, right? I think that in the first shot of the movie when they're in the hotel, uh, Sam is standing over her, right, as she's lying in bed. And then you have the patrolman who's standing on over her, kind of like leaning down on her face and whatnot. So that's a recurring thing. And to have, you know, Norman, who, as you mentioned, is like this awkward, but just like polite and handsome guy to then be basically, you know, that level of dominance and worse, but being very reserved initially with it, um, I think is the theme that kind of connects all those male characters all the way through the film. Um, it's also the biggest change, I believe, from the novel, which I'm not familiar with at all, but um, that originally Norman was supposed to be you know, the, what you would expect of a traditional, uh, you know, motel dwelling killer of this, you know, a, he's a big guy, an older guy, he's not attractive and whatnot. And I think the decision to go in the opposite direction is what works so well in the favor of, you know, the misdirect that Hitchcock has crafted, where it's like, well, how could this guy be the killer? It's got to be somebody else because he's too polite and handsome and whatnot to actually do these things. Um, and so when you get to the end of the film and it's revealed that he's the one that's been dressing up as his mother and killing people, um, it just plays in a manner that's more shocking. Um, and I'm just such a fan of the fact that, um, you know, again, the while I knew going in and watching the film what the twist was, I really don't see a lot of holes in sort of Hitchcock's maneuvering around the fact or hiding the fact that like, oh, no, it is this guy and there is no mother um, he does a great job of just setting him up as the fall guy, as I said, um, in a manner that I think is held up very, very well. I don't know if, I mean, I, I was wondering what you thought about this. I felt that, you know, when um, like Marion is killed, there seems to be this sense of um, that detachment from what he's done, right? Because he comes and then he's shocked and he's like, oh my God, you know, what have you done? And then he kind of like cleans up the mess, right? But um, with the detective, I felt like, he was kind of having fun. Like he kind of like when the detective walks away, he kind of like smirks a little and he looks like, you know, oh, you know, this guy is like, what's he trying to do, right? And I don't know, like I felt like um, it there wasn't like no remorse or anything or guilt or whatever, right? So it, it makes it very interesting that he kind of feels, um, you know, for I guess the women that he kills, I think there is that, that sense of that guilt and that remorse. But for men... You know, uh, he's just like, yeah, I mean, he can just easily dispose of them. Then, I mean, it goes back to the whole, um, his very first kills, right? And um, why he did what he did and how it kind of started the entire thing. I don't know. I don't know if you noticed it. Like, do you think so as well? I agree. And I think that it's interesting. He doesn't show remorse for his male victims. And yet I find that, you know, his conversation, clearly, if, you know, a majority of his victims have been women. And the fact that, you know, we get the example with Marion Crane, the fact that he is so comfortable and feels in control of those moments, you know, that scene where they're having that dinner together. He, some of the things he might be saying are like eccentric or strange, but it doesn't feel like he is not in control of that conversation and that situation. Whereas when he has that conversation with uh, Abergast, quickly he shows that like he is not capable of keeping up the ruse that he is having of like, oh yeah, I've never seen her. And then immediately he gets pushed back. And every time he gets pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, it starts to fall apart of the fact that, oh, actually, no, I did see her. I had dinner with her and these things. And I think that it's interesting 
the contrast between when he is able to kill people, it is remorseless with men. And yet the conversation, the one conversation he has with a man, he is not able to keep up the same type of dominance. I think that he had in that initial situation with uh, Marion Crane, just because it was so interesting to see him be so smart and so calculated in trying to dupe her. And then when it comes time for him to, you know, have a conversation with this figure that is kind of paralleling a little bit of uh, Marion Crane's conversation with the cop, right? The fact that this figure won't stop asking questions, wants to get all these truths out of the person that's trying to, you know, conceal them. Um, And then he just starts to fall apart in a way that I don't think that uh, Marion Crane ever really did. Um, So it's an interesting concept, contrast of just like, when he's in different personas, how he's able to handle certain situations, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, it goes back, I guess, to um, the fact that it's him and his mom, right? Um, And I guess he he does maybe feel more comfortable with women and more in control. Whereas with men, um, he never had like, a, I mean, his father died was it or left or something like that um you know so he he never really had like a male authority figure so i think he doesn't really know how to handle himself with men um i mean you see the same thing playing out again with sam later on right um you know the 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 way he can't like um seem to get a handle in the conversation when sam is interrogating him is the same thing all over again he's like not confident he's shaky you know uh, there's no bravado there's no edge so yeah i think i mean i think it goes back to like um how his world was while when he was growing up he didn't really have i think a lot of men so i think yeah i don't know that's interesting yeah kind of a funny kickoff for the finale of the film where you have norman who is this sort of uh almost i would say frail uh guy just like casually knock out sam uh, that was just like one of those moments where I was just like, oh, wow, okay, he's actually incredibly strong and he's able to knock this guy out. Uh, but then you have that as the primer for, you know, uh, Lily herself going into the house and discovering in the fruit cellar the corpse of Norman's mother's body, uh, which is, of course, rotten and skeletal and whatnot. And again, I just, I love seeing Hitchcock lean more into avenues of filmmaking that he normally probably wouldn't, right? I think this is, of course, uh, something that you saw briefly in The Birds when a character finds a body and you get this close-up of the skull that's got the eyes pecked out and everything, and it's extreme graphic violence. Granted, he's made a a filmography that consists of nothing but, you know, films of people getting murdered or (laughs) double-crossed or shot and stabbed and all these things. So he's no stranger to murder, but seeing him lean into the graphic violence of the horror genre, I think is an interesting twist that if anything, it kind of heightens each of the kills in the film. Granted, there's so few of them, but each of them are memorable in a way that they're composed. And the fact that, you know, it's furthermore revealing about the character in some way and whatnot. And I think that that finale is great. And you get that, you know, Sam comes in at the last minute and is able to save her. And then of course the wig and the dress come off and you realize, oh, it's Norman dressing up as his mother um, and doing these things, which he sells so incredibly well when you have the light swinging around in the room and he like does this scream and the light just reveals all. I mean, that is such a, such an incredible moment. Uh, that's still incredibly disturbing as your mind all of a sudden kind of like pieces together what has been happening the entire time. I, I, I always find it <laughs> quite funny that she's like, ah, 
<laughs> she like hits the light bulb. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like Hitchcock was just like, okay, I need you to hit this light bulb. <laughs> I don't know, like, you know, give what, what you need to give your character, like, you know, what impetus you need, but you gotta like do that. I I I think what I like is that the the reactions or the screams, right, are like so dramatic and artificial. Um, you know, because the real people don't like and then like oh let me like move my hand in this very unnatural way but um and it was the same thing for the shower scene right the way um you know the way she she screams uh the you know the way the knife goes in and stuff like that um but i don't know it 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 still evokes a kind of horror just in a you know it's but it's very different from like i guess you know if you watch like a scream scream movie and you see someone like being like murdered and you know that's like i guess real right you know there's a sense of realism uh whereas hitchcock doesn't have that but um i don't know like this dramatic staging of it is just it's just impeccable yeah well i think that that's why again like there's so few kills but they're so memorable and it's mostly because of the staging the staging i think is what is such a standout and shows that you know he's relying on tools that he built his career on which is mostly you know set pieces and staging and these things and making the mundane a standout the fact that he's able to make what is just like a dingy fruit seller you know that much tense because of the lighting and whatnot how the light's spinning and whatnot you have the realization of who, what norman's been doing the arbogast kill it's a guy getting stabbed on a staircase but then you have him you know falling in real time as he's got this look of terror on his face you have the taking of the shower, which is this very sort of uh, intimate, and it's supposed to be almost like a sanctuary place for people, and yet it's being used as this sort of kill box for the first kill of the film. Like he does this repeatedly throughout the movie, um, and I think that it's why it's more than just you know it being the most graphically violent thing I think he'd done up until that point. It's more about you know giving more credence to the environment in a way that feels somewhat familiar. But at the same time, then having the shocking violence unfold within it. Um, and it, yeah, it's one of those things where every time I watch this movie, I come back to like, why don't I watch this more again? Because <laughs> like, it is such a briskly paced film that is so impactful and filled with so many fantastic performances. And as you mentioned uh, early on, that final scene of Norman just slowly looking up and getting this creepy smile on his face, staring directly into the camera as he hears his mother talking is like, it's bone chilling. It's just every single time, no matter how many times you watch the movie, it's a perfect sort of uh, send off for that character and that film. Yeah, I, and I mean that there's like I mean we've talked about it extensively, but there's so many like memorable shots. But I think I think the one that I didn't really mention, but I like that I would want to like circle back to is um, when he's talking to the detective, and then he does this like neck crane thing. And then like Hitchcock just like lingers on him, like stretching his neck to like look over uh, the detective as he's like glancing over. And it's like so protracted and so intense, right? And you're just like, is he gonna like stab the dude? Like <laughs> uh, you know, and he's just like nonchalant nonchalantly, like just chewing candy. I don't know. Yeah. That is one of the, like the I was just like, whoa. Yeah. So I don't know. I I I think what I always appreciate is that um the great thing I think about growing up and like watching film over the years is like how your perspective kind of shifts over the years and like as you gain more experience and more like film watching knowledge, like all these little things like, you know, that maybe you didn't notice when you were younger, like suddenly you're like, oh, wow, like, you know, um, 
yeah, they just catch your eye. And it, I think it's just great that I can watch a film so many times and like still see new things that I've never seen before or didn't notice the first time. Yeah. Well, I think that moment you mentioned is a great one because that comes, you know, shortly after you have Marion Crane who gets murdered, who we all assumed was going to be the protagonist from the start to finish of the film, the way in which her character is set up. We've spent an hour with her um, and it just kind of subverting that usual uh, format or structure handling of protagonists to the degree that that moment where she's killed is introduced so suddenly that it kind of re it kind of reminds your brain as you're watching the second half of the film and doesn't really allow the viewer to relax because they ha- are basically thinking, well, nobody is safe. So death can come at any time for any character. And so it makes the little nuances in characters' performances or their little sort of actions that they take. It's like, oh, is he trying to see what that guy's looking at or see what he's writing? Or is he about to stab this guy in the neck? Right. And I think that that's what makes the second half of the film just as intense as the beginning half of the film and whatnot, because that air of the unexpected is kind of like rekindled with the fact that she gets killed halfway into the movie. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what billing anybody is on the call sheet. Right. I think Bates, I think um, Perkins was first. He doesn't show up for the first half an hour. And then Janet Lee was or maybe it was Vera Miles. Vera Miles was second and she doesn't show up for an hour. So it's almost kind of just subverting audience expectations at every turn, whether it's handling a protagonist, whether it's how people view importance of roles with the billing of certain things and just playing around with the structure of what, uh, I think even for the time period, you know, 1960 with horror films, really horror films weren't constructed in this similar kind of manner. I think people probably assumed, oh, well, it's going to be a little more in line with, I don't want to say camp necessarily, but playing to a format structure more in line with horror films of that period. Um, and I really don't think anybody other than Hitchcock could craft this sort of format for going through a horror film that so, you know, is influenced by his previous styles and formatting techniques and tendencies and whatnot, but then just giving you the most extreme version of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know um, if if I'm like overthinking this, but oh, I think one thing I also noticed is that... Um, the like when Lila basically like you know talks about suspicions right she's like something's happened at the motel right um she's kind of once again like um deterred at all points by like you know different men like the sheriff like Sam both try to convince her that she's being paranoid that she's overthinking it you know and that the detective probably just like went on to the next stop or like you know tried to take the money for himself right um yeah, and I don't know, like it, it. I don't know when I was watching this, I just kept thinking like, wow, Barbarian was really like inspired by this because like, it's this, it was the same situation I think in Barbarian where she was trying to convince, like um the Bill Sarsgaard character that you know something's going on in this house and you know he just doesn't take her seriously, you know, yeah um, yeah I don't know like I I think that um. Sometimes the idea of danger, I feel, is more present and more real and um, more there, I guess, for women more than men. I don't know. Like, I think we see it more, um, yeah, like quickly than um, than men do, you know. Yeah. So I think sometimes when I'm like, when I get, you know, when I was in like, you know, there was a situation where um, there was this like drunk man and he was like, 
disturbing me, you know, as I was walking back home. And I called my brother and he was just like, just ignore the dude, you know. He's just like, just walk away, right? You know, and like he couldn't understand why I was like scared. Because for him, it's just like, just leave the dude alone. Like, just walk away and you'll be fine, you know. So I kind of uh could really relate to Lila in that moment where she's just like, you know, I talked to this guy, right? And I know that something's not right, you know. Uh, Yeah, and I don't know. Yeah, so... <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I, no, she has that intuition yeah. that completely eludes the male characters. And if anything, you know, I think that as something that we've mentioned previously, you know, even with uh, Marion, right, all of her interactions with men have this layer of tension to them or this threat of being found out, even though none of them are going to know what she's actually up to or anything like that. But it's just this extra added layer of the uncomfortability of being questioned and, you know, being given the third degree, essentially, by these men that it's none of their business uh, and just wanting to, you know, extract information that very clearly is making her uncomfortable or she doesn't want to give up, Um, you know, for uh, somebody like Norman Bates then to come along, who is this person that's viewed as along the same lines, trying to extract that information, but is presented in a less, I'll say, authoritarian manner of the other figures that she's been interacting with. It's the type of thing where it's like, oh, no, danger can come in many forms for women. Um, and I would say that, you know, again, that's from a, a male perspective, but it's the type of thing where I think Hitchcock at least makes that more palpable uh, for the audience, right? This idea that it's like, yeah, you need to view this through the eyes of an experience other than your own, uh, which I think is also why that uh, Mary and Death in the Shower is so affecting because it's her from her point of view, right? And I think that by you've been shown, you know, what her interactions are like and all of these things, but then being put in her shoes in this worst moment of her life, um, I think kind of like sends that message home in a way that uh, is far more disturbing and effective than just, you know, the bloodshed that's on screen. Yeah. I don't know. I think one thing I wanted to ask you, right, is, you know, the, the last part, like the resolution, right, where you have this psychiatrist coming out and he's just like explaining everything like I don't know how do you feel about that revelation like do you feel like like that we needed this moment you know like what do you think no I, I I definitely don't think that we need it I wouldn't be surprised if it was a reaction to the fact that this film the subject matter of this film dealt with and why it was viewed as being you know, as extreme as it was for the time period is because it dealt with the fact of like a man dressing up as a woman. And I think the psychiatrist even uh, breaks down what the definition of like a a transvestite is, I think. And I almost feel like it was more reactionary. They have to give an explanation because audiences otherwise maybe would have just been like confused or enraged by not having something explained to them. Um, But yeah, that ending has always felt very rushed outside of that final shot of Norman because it goes from that sort of like ham-fisted, here's a clinical definition of what's going on. And then it cuts to like the car being dragged out of the swamp and then it just ends. Um, so yeah, I don't really have a good answer for that other than I found it to be very like a very rushed conclusion to something that would have been better served, I think, to just end with him in the cell and him looking up at the camera and hearing the mother's voices. That would have, I think that would have been much more effective because at the end of the day, 
does it really matter why he did it? <laughs> right. I think maybe audiences nowadays are a little more, um, a little more open to either interpretation or sort of certain vagueness because the film itself does a good enough job of explaining things just that you can infer from what's been happening. The fact that, oh, this is somebody that was in this abuse, had an abusive mother, and then they had, you know, the fact that she mysteriously died or was poisoned. And then you can start to piece those, you know, parts together in a way that it's like you craft the narrative of why this person's doing what they're doing. Um, so the fact that we have to, you know, have it spelled out for us is disappointing. But I think just for the time period and what they were doing, they kind of felt they had to explain it because I think people were more accustomed to having everything answered for them uh, back in the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like it was out of place. And I, I mean, I think I kind of blocked it from my memory. So I was like, wait, why is there this scene where he's just like explaining everything, right? Um, yeah. But I mean, I did appreciate like learning some things you know i think like the whole idea of matricide and um i think what like i think before that you know they do talk about i think the cherry does talk about how she murdered her lover and she murdered killed herself as well right uh, it's a murder suicide kind of thing so i think even though i had seen norman do so many things i think at the same time i never really kind of thought I mean I, I mean, I wasn't sure if he, he had anything to do with it. Like, I thought maybe that he had just seen this moment of violence and that kind of inspired mm. his own violence in turn. So I think having, I guess, an explanation of, like, why he would, like, kill all these women that he desires mm -hmm. um, was interesting and helpful. But I don't know. I felt like it could have been weaved in in some better fashion. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the cop early on is the one that reveals, you know, that Norman's mother's been dead for 10 years. And if they had fleshed maybe that interaction out a little bit better, that could have been the point where you get to have those sort of realizations without, you know, then having to go into this sort of straightforward explanation of this is why I did it. And this is the cause of it. Um, I think they could have, like you said, kind of sprinkled that in a little bit better um, rather than just having like, a scene of dialogue that just seems to kind of like fill in the pieces and just tell us exactly 100% this is why. And that's the result uh, that you get when you experience that or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I think, again, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say that it's an ex a sloppy execution to the degree that it like undoes anything that was done previously, yeah. but it is the one section of the film where it kind of feels like, okay, how do we end this film truly? Um, I also think it's funny that they dragged the car out. Of, they felt the need to show them dragging the car out of the lake uh, or the swamp. It was just like, okay, that could have been, again, in the previous scene with the cop, they could have dragged that out and then have the final shot just be him staring at the screen with that creepy smile on his face. Because um, that is a very arresting image. And that being the final thing, I think would have made it even more impactful if it just fades out from that. Um, I also like how when it fades out from his face, briefly, you see the skull of his mother. Um, that was something that I hadn't noticed on the previous watch. And that was something that I really, really liked because, again, it kind of just further cementing home that, uh, you know, that personality has become intertwined with his own to a certain degree. I, I don't know where I read this or if I saw it somewhere, but um, do you remember anything about, um, I think, I think something along the lines of like in the script, he's just supposed to just be staring, um, you know, at the camera. And but it's his idea, I think, to kind of creepily smile 
Like, I don't think he was supposed to, but he he kind of did it, and then it ended up being this iconic moment. Yeah, I don't know. Like well, that, that 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 plays the nuances, yeah, right? Yeah. Those little those little uh, nuances of his character that kind of give that personality. I think are great. So I mean, maybe that's why they kind of ended it on the car moment, because maybe like they didn't know that he was gonna do that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah it wasn't I guess it wasn't planned right it wasn't like part of it yeah um, it reminded me of a Edgar Allan Poe short story where um, where he talks about you know um, look at me I wouldn't even like hurt a fly um, and I think it's a very uh, Edgar Allan Poe like line I think it was from like Telltale Heart you know where he like um, the protagonist consistently like talks about how he would never hurt anyone and then you know but he's actually a murderer so that's like a very like cool way to end I felt like that line I love a lot of the lines and the the dialogue it's really great that's probably the one aspect of the film that gets overlooked the most because of you know you have again these kill scenes that are so memorable that twist of like oh it's a guy dressing up as a mother and killing people is what the film has really solidified the film's sort of legacy. But I think this film overall, and it's a testament to the performances just as much as it is the writing, it feels like there's not a lot of wasted dialogue or wasted character interactions. Um, and again, in a film that is almost two hours long, um, that's very rare, I think. And I love that, again, it, it plays mostly to Hitchcock's strengths, right? Because if this was a film that had a, a littering of kills who's to say that it would have the same impact, right? Because it's more about the qu- the quality versus the quantity. And I love that in lieu of those lack of, you know, a traditional body count of a horror film, you have these moments of dialogue that again are so strong. They're either witty or funny or intense or uncomfortable. And that carries a lot of perhaps the traditional expectations of a horror film, I think, for people. Because um, it is just so engaging from start to finish that again, it is this brisk sort of journey that, even once you lose the character that you assume was going to be the protagonist for the whole film, when you swap over to the other characters, it doesn't have the same lag that so many films do, I feel. Um, you know, I, I guess taking it back to Barbarian, when Barbarian has that, it's a different type of thing, right? When you change to a new character, it's a lot more abrupt. It's a little longer, but it's done so in a manner that it feels like it's informing something yeah. to the degree that by the time you get back to the house it doesn't feel like this has been a waste of time. Yeah. Whereas when I think about some films from this era of the 60s or even 70s, the transitioning between parts of a story or perspectives of a story, and it's generalizing, but it can feel far more clunky or like we have to spend another 30 minutes before we actually return to the meat and bones of what this uh, you know story is about. Whereas with this, you jump through those characters, you have a brief interaction, and then you're right back at Bates Motel and they're unraveling this mystery um, in a way that, uh, you know, I think is done so that doesn't over, overly rely on some of the tropes you might expect. And it's more focused on, you know, furthering that development of those characters and showing so much of their personality in each uh, each bit of dialogue. Yeah. I mean, what I found kind of funny is that the psychiatrist was like, you know, it was like the mother who did all the kills, right? You know, the mother was the one who did all the kills. And then, like, when you cut away to the end and um, the mother is, like, having her thoughts and stuff. And, um, but she's, like, kind of saying that, you know, I had to tell them that it was my son, right? Like, I had to kind of, like, make it clear that I'm not a killer and whatnot. So, it kind of creates this moment where you're, like, 
wait, like, <laughs> didn't the psychiatrist come out and was just like, it's the mother, you know, the, the mother is the one who's done all these things and, you know, the mother's side or the, the mother persona that he's created. But then the mother persona is sitting there and just like, you know, oh, I had to tell them that it was my son that did it. I don't know, it just created like this moment for me where I was just like, okay, like, <laughs> so, like, which was it? <laughs> And I also kind of like that we never see him speak as the mother. Like, it's always done from, like, a distance, from, like, a closed door. And uh, it just makes it feel real. Like, I feel like he's actually speaking as the mother, you know? Because I feel like it would just take away from that suspension of disbelief if, like, they tried to voice over it or something. So, I don't know. Like, it, it, made, it was so believable that he was the one speaking as the mother. Well, they do a great job, again, of just concealing the fact that he's more than an accomplice. Um, because that would be something that, once you've learned the twist in some films, I find it can be difficult to not pick up on something that's far more blatant or obvious. You know, up until the point where she gets in the shower, it's like, yeah, he's this weirdo taxidermy guy that's all by himself at this motel, and there's this beautiful woman. It's believable that, you know, a seedy motel manager might be peeping in on somebody, right? But I like that the way they present his character, you can see that there's enough of a gap between him being this creep to, you know, not being this outright murderer uh, that is actually responsible for it, right? I think they do a good job of kind of dispelling the notion that, and, you know, you mentioned it in terms of just like how shocked he is and how he's like shouting at his mother from the hotel or the motel and everything, um, it does a great job, I think, of showing two sides of a character that you don't immediately just leap to like, oh, yeah, well, you know, he's this uh, creep pervert who j then, you know, is going to run and murder somebody, but then put on this performance to be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's terrifying and shocking and everything. Like, it's so believable, the separate portrayals of that character. Um, and I wonder, too, if part of the reason the psychiatrist like gives this explanation, but then it's like kind of confusing what he's talking about in terms of like having that direct evidence of like, no, it was actually the two separate personas. Um, that might just be to like, again, wrap up something that an audience was either not understanding or in terms of just like them trying to wrap their mind around the certain uh, taboo elements of the film itself. Um, that could have been a part of it too. Just like even psychiatrists themselves for the period weren't the best at handling uh, certain things or made their own assumptions about different cases without uh, perhaps understanding it as thoroughly as uh, someone in their profession should have. I don't know when Lila asked, you know, like, did, did he kill my sister or something like that? And then the psychiatrist is like, yes and no or something like that. I was just like, I would have <laughs> right. just punched the dude. I was like, it's a bit annoying. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I don't know. It felt uh, very whodunit. Uh, kind of yeah. moment where you know, like the the lead person is just explaining everything, but in this case, it's the it's the psychiatrist. <laughs> um, I think when you talked about the whole um, you know, Hitchcock making making it very like deliberate. Um, you know that um, trying to kind of distinguish these the mother and you know Norman, right? I think he makes it a point to kind of um after he does his whole peep show thing, he like walks very quickly to the house and like you know um. And then we see him like at a, like at a distance, you know, and then suddenly we are back in the room with her. So it kind of creates a sense that, you know, it's not him, right? It's it's his mother. Yeah. So I think um they like, yeah, he does that quite well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he, you know, sows enough doubt in this person being, because really 
at the time, there's only three people and one of them is up at the house. So who else could it be? And um, even though I think Norman has shown that he is incredibly fast, whether he's killing people or running up to the house to change and then running <laughs> back down. But I like that, again, even on subsequent rewatches and whatnot, um, it's the type of thing where I think he just he hides it so well and he presents things so well that and I think part of it is putting you in the shoes of other characters and whatnot to the degree that it's like you almost forget that Norman's run up to the house because you're so involved in this intimate scene of, you know, being in the shower and getting that perspective of the shower head and whatnot, that when you see that figure in the back, you're like, there's no way that that could be anybody other than the mother. That couldn't be Norman. And that amount of, that's the element, I suppose, of this film with the whodunit uh, aspect is part of what makes this, you know, such a, such a timeless horror film and one that you can come back to all these years later and rewatch. And even if, like I said, it's something that we had moments of it ruined for us by the time we got around to watching it. It really doesn't impact our enjoyment of the film um, because I would say that the twist is probably the part of the film that is like, I wouldn't say my least favorite, but it's not the thing that I think stands out the most about this movie. When you talk about, you know, this movie's place in horror history, having the twist be, oh, it was actually him and not his mother. It's like, I understand why people go to that, but I think more importantly, it's more about just all that we've been talking about, the way that this film is lit, the way that this film is scored, the way that this film, you know, plays around with set pieces and everything like that. Um, and having such a fantastic cast, I really am blown away again by just how strongly yes. the entire cast yes. is uh, at portraying their character. Maybe John Gavin as Sam Loomis wasn't my favorite, but at the end of the day, he's stacked up against uh, Perkins, Janet Lee, Vera Miles, and Martin Balsam, who is not nearly in as much of the film as I remembered him being in, but he is so memorable in this. Is just, you know, whether it's his death scene and he's just so expressive and shocked, yeah. or if it's his back and forth with uh, with uh, Norman Bates, which is, I love that. That might be one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he's just doing this sort of back and forth. He's like, I know you're full of shit. I want to get these answers out of you anyways, type of thing. And just seeing Norman sort of like crumble almost in front of him in terms of his story or his ruse um, is a moment that I think is always a standout for me. Yeah, I think you weren't a fan of um, <laughs> Sam Lewis, Loomis's chest chest hair <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> I I was going to say, I think that's probably why he was cast more than his actual <laughs> acting ability. Uh, not that he was terrible or anything, but he's kind of just, he doesn't leave a mark in the same way that uh, maybe he did for some people, but he doesn't leave a mark uh, when stacked up against the other cast. Uh, cast members and whatnot. But yeah, you know, overall, again, it's funny that when we're talking about the cast, just knowing that, you know, Hitchcock's decision to make this film was very reactionary to he didn't really want to make these uh, star studded uh, big budget films anymore. And yet this is what he considers to not be a star studded <laughs> cast, because granted, you know, they don't hold a candle in terms of popularity to people like Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, Grace Kelly. But at the same time, like, these people give performances that make this film in such a fundamental way that it's just very funny to re and apparently the studio thought that this was going to be a total bomb. Ooh. So they allowed him to forego his salary, but he would receive 60% of the revenue from the movie. And so this ended up being, I think his most uh, profitable film because of that, because it was so well received and it was such a hit at the box office um, it also was probably the first instance of um, 
not the first instance, but in terms of marketing, really playing up the infamous nature of how scary, how violent, how twisted this movie is along the lines of a marketing campaign, not unlike, uh, you know, The Exorcist or something yeah. like that. Because um, they had this, I was doing a little bit of research into this. They had in the lobby of uh, theaters that would be playing this film, they would have either a sign or they would have an announcement over the loudspeaker reminding people that the movie starts in 30 minutes and that you're not allowed to go in once it starts because they didn't want to have the twist, the uh, midpoint of the movie ruined, but at the same time, just building up this anticipation of like how terrifying this movie is. And if anything, also, you know, having the threat of uh, being locked into the theater, not literally, but just this idea that once, if you don't get in, you can't get in later, or if you go in, you can't come out, that type of thing, Um, (laughs) which I think just like builds up the intensity of, uh, you know, the idea of going in to see a movie and it being this thing that you actually have to think about strategically, like making sure you don't miss anything and making sure you're on time more so than maybe, you know, even somebody like myself <laughs> can be kind of anal about getting to movies on time and not being late for them. But, you know, having the, that play a role in the marketing, I think just heightens the overall anticipation and uh, uh, tension of going to see this movie. I, I really miss that. I really miss um being able to, I think, go to the cinema and I think appreciate like like anticipate like go in with anticipation like i really miss that because i think that you know nowadays before i go in to watch a film or even if i'm watching something on streaming i i feel like in some way i've kind of been spoiled in some capacity even if i didn't like seek out the film's synopsis or i i deliberately didn't watch any trailers i don't know there's just so much information out there that inevitably like i just get spoiled just from being on twitter or you know, like just talking to your friend and, you know, maybe they watched it and then they inadvertently kind of spoiled it for you. I don't know, like I felt like I could go into a movie blind and with anticipation like, you know, before and I can't really do that now. Like I feel like I know too much about a film even before I like go into the space. So I kind of missed that. I really like felt like, you know, like when The Matrix came out, you know, that that kind of like, whoa, like you know, everybody's like queuing around the block to watch it, you know, and everyone's mm-hmm. like just so hyped. Uh yeah, I don't know. It's 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 sad a bit, little bit. <laughs> I don't know. I I found I totally relate to that. I think something that I've done over the years that has helped that mostly, but you know, still being on Twitter as uh, often as I am has definitely kind of like broken through that plan of mine. But I do a media blackout for certain things where I'm just like, I'm not going to watch any trailers of it. Like I still haven't had a chance to see uh, Evil Dead Rise. Well, actually, by the time this comes out, I will have seen it. But um, I'm about two weeks after its release and haven't had a chance to see it. And when they announced that movie, I was like, I'm not going to watch trailers for it. It's Evil Dead. I'm going to go see a new Evil Dead, regardless of the direction they take, whether it's in line with the remake and it being darker or whether it reverts to a more humor focused uh, like the originals, but or the second and third films. But you still, being on Twitter, it's like I've already seen, I heard the title card for that movie is amazing. I've already had somebody post the title card on Twitter and I saw it and I was like, ah, oh, what the fuck? Like, that's obnoxious. <laughs> that's annoying. But I find overall, like nowadays, if I'm sold on a premise or a director or, you know, the series that's being remaked or rebooted, I'm just not going to watch the media for it because I'm going to be sold on that regardless. Um, And I think that somewhat movies, I think more niche, specifically like niche horror films, 
are doing a better job at cutting their trailers of not showing too much. Yeah. Granted, yeah. a couple days before release, you see those final trailers for any movie and it's like they get, you see the uh, anxiety of people not showing up for a movie that you see them showing more and more and more. But I think overall, um, the media blackout for certain things has definitely served me well. But yeah, you know, I could probably stand to be off Twitter a little more than I am and I would have uh, better results of things not being spoiled for me. But that's just kind of the, the age of movie fandom we're in, I suppose. Yeah, and I know, I mean, you know, because I I do like the editing, right, on Cult Vault. So like for Evil Dead Rise, I haven't watched it yet. But I I mean, I, I read the review. <laughs> like I, I put in the trailer. <laughs> so I, I like, you know, you, you, you inevitably get like, are caught into it even if when you like um you try not to like you still like you know like you know you still kind of stumble into it and yeah so yeah i mean as much i think we, we i think we both try i think to go in as blind as possible but i think it's just impossible in this age to do so completely which is kind of sad yeah well even even all those years ago when i saw the uh you know the scariest moment special on tv randomly and had you know a scene from psycho ruined for me but at the same time it's a testament to overall how this film is constructed where it's not just you know a moment here a moment there it really is the way in which that key scene is incorporated into the film and overall uh you know there's more to that film than just its two kills and its big reveal i think um which not to say that Psycho hasn't been, uh, you know, revered properly for decades in terms of being this masterpiece, uh, whether a genre masterpiece or one of Hitchcock's masterpieces. Uh, it's the type of thing where I think that is the true test, right? It's that it's more than just these few little moments. It's really how this entire thing is constructed around those moments um, and how that makes something that much more, uh, you know, memorable, but also I think something that is timeless, in many ways. Yeah. But uh, I, my last question for you, I guess, will be, have you seen any of the sequels? Because you said you saw the remake, I believe, but there's also Psycho 2, 3, and 4, um, which I haven't seen. Oh, no, I've not seen the sequels. I've seen the the remake, um, which I think um, a lot of people dismissed, but I think I read something somewhere, I think it was on Reddit or something, that someone had this perspective and said that um, it needed to be made has like an experiment because basically it's an exact copy of uh, Hitchcock's film except that it's in different cast it's in colour right Um, but it's basically shot by shot I think the same film and they they just thought that it's just a very uh, it, it exists Um, it has a purpose in the sense that it exists to show that you know a shot by shot remake is not going to be better <laughs> like I don't know like uh, <laughs> right. which I found quite interesting Uh, yeah but I've not watched the sequels yeah that makes me interested to see the remake because I didn't know that I didn't know it was shot for shot but it's interesting to go in watching something as like the cautionary tale for the next you know what was it 24 years after its release of how not to do a horror remake perhaps but uh, I'm interested the only thing else I know about is Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates which <laughs> no matter what era you're in, that's a wild casting, but I'll be interested to see that one when I inevitably get to it. I think even Anthony Perkins directed one of the sequels I think because he's in two, three, and four, and I think he directed the fourth one. But again, I haven't seen any of those. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, which I think would be interesting. Just again, that's why I like exploring sequels that I haven't seen, even if you know a sequel down the line doesn't end up being great. It's still an interesting 
experiment, I think, in what happens when you give somebody that's been a part of the series from the first film, you know, creative license to direct their own film. Um, and I think Perkins had directed one or two other things before that, maybe. But anyways, um, that's sort of what I like about visiting sequels, especially when you keep the cast sort of in the family or you have these recurring people who have been in that series from day one. Um, so that'll be very, very interesting to uh, to kind of see once I get there. I got a ways to go before I get all the way to the, uh, you know, the fourth film or even the remake. But I was so pleased to have you rejoin me to chat uh, about Hitchcock's Psycho, a film that I just watched, but I feel like I could go back and watch it yeah. again. Um, <laughs> it's one of those films that, like I said at the beginning, every time I watch it, I'm like, why don't I watch this more often? It's like three or four times over the course of 10 years doesn't seem like uh, the right amount of times to have revisited it. But yeah, no, I was so happy to have you back. And uh, before I let you go, I'd love for you to just plug your Twitter so people can follow all your terrific work on Twitter. Okay. Or for Culture Vultures, <laughs> I should say. So um, yeah, I mean, if you enjoyed, I guess, my ramblings, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lit My Soul. Um, I'm the film editor over at Culture Vultures. And, you know, we do lots of great stuff on film. Um, we have TV, books, games, wrestling. Yeah, so it's a fun time and lots of great work. Awesome. Well, you've also been doing uh, more podcasting too, which I'd love to see. And uh, yeah, people, will, if they follow you on Twitter, they'll get to see uh, your updates on upcoming episodes you'll be on as well. But uh, yeah, as always, it's awesome getting to pick your brain on uh, horror. I, I love coming on your show. I think this is my fourth time. But I think uh, it was really, I think... Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think I started going on more podcasts because I enjoyed being on your show so much. So thank you for having me as always. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I've always enjoyed our chats. Um, and I think that something I've enjoyed about having you on is that, you know, we're able to dissect movies in a way that is somewhat similar, you know, but I think at the same time, we both bring a, our sort of our own perspectives to it. And, you know, even uh, I can pitch you on films like, um, oh, God, now I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, the one that we just did in November with the backpackers. Significant Others. Uh, significant yeah. Others. Yeah. But like even a film like that, that kind of like went under the radar for the most part. Um, I was, we were able to pitch, I think I pitched you on it and you were like, yeah, totally. I'd be down to chat about that. So it's like, Awesome to have uh, somebody I can turn to that's always open to chat about stuff, no matter, you know, the size of the release, if you will. So, yeah, I enjoyed uh, our chat as always and look forward to chatting with you hopefully again in the future. Yes, I hope so, too. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.